Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome to Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. You have two co-hosts today. I'm Jamie Santos. And I'm Kate Shaw. And if you're listening today, you know that this is a podcast about the Supreme Court. Uh, And June is the time when the court typically churns out the majority of its big opinions. But that's not what we're going to focus on today, um, because there's really only one thing that feels like it matters right now. Uh, And that, of course, are the protests across the country set in motion by the May 25th murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, And, you know, the broader reckoning with police violence against people of color and systemic racial injustice that Floyd's killing has set in motion. The reckoning has involved now over two weeks of protests across the country with thousands and thousands of people in the streets in cities large and small, curfews in place in many cities. And despite the fact that the vast majority of these protests have been nonviolent, many have involved outrageous displays of force and use of force from the police and other officials in response. So we want to start the episode today by talking about some of the legal doctrines that shape the way that police officers interact with members of the public. Um, And we can't cover everything, so we're going to put a few things to the side. We're not going to talk about the First Amendment too much today, even though we know that these protesters are engaged in extremely high value and constitutionally protected speech uh, and assembly, and those things are clearly important here. We're also not going to spend a ton of time on the Fourth Amendment. Um, There's a complex body of law that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit, and we might revisit in more depth in a later episode. Um, But instead, we're going to talk about a few related doctrines that make it really, really hard to hold police officers accountable, even for egregious misconduct. And in particular, we're going to spend some time talking about the doctrine of qualified immunity, which I think is a phrase we've heard a lot more about in the last um, couple of weeks. So we're going to start out with that discussion, and then we're going to spend a little time on recent developments from the court, including a couple of the opinions that were released last Monday. Um, Kate, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So as Jamie just said, we're going to start with a subset of the legal doctrines that have contributed to the lack of police accountability. And for this part of the episode, um, we are delighted to be joined by Fred Smith, who is an associate professor at Emory Law School in Atlanta. He's a former law clerk to Justice Sotomayor, among others, uh, and a scholar of constitutional law and the federal courts. And most significant for purposes of our discussion today, he's someone who has written and thought quite a lot about the doctrine of qualified immunity. Um, you know, it's a complicated doctrine. Jamie and I are versed in it, but not 
not experts, and Fred really is an expert. So Fred, welcome to Strict Scrutiny. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Absolutely delighted to be here. You've written a lot on qualified immunity, and I know you filed amicus briefs in the Supreme Court in qualified immunity cases. Um, Let's maybe start with the basics. Uh, Tell us what qualified immunity is and where it comes from. I assume there's a U.S. Code citation or a specific constitutional provision that you'll be able to point us to so we can look it up as we go along. All right. So on that last point, (laughs) as you (laughs) I'm sure are aware, um, there is no such statute um, and there is uh, no such constitutional provision. Uh, And in fact, uh, if one were simply to read the most relevant statute, which is Section 1983, uh, that's 42 U.S.C. uh, Section 1983, uh, it begins with the language every person, uh, referring to individuals who uh, violate federal rights um, and are acting under the color of state law um, and announcing a rule of liability um, for individuals who uh, meet that description. Um, nonetheless, uh, the Supreme Court um, has uh, read into um, the uh, Section 1983, um, as well as um, other lawsuits against uh, state officials um, and federal officials, um, a rule that uh, we're going to look to whether or not the government official is violating clearly established law that a reasonable person would have known at the time of the violation. Uh, so anytime uh, a plaintiff wants to sue uh, a government official who's acting under the color of state or federal law um, for violating a federal right, and if they're seeking money damages, Uh, and they're suing that uh, officer um, or that employee in their individual capacity, um, then they need to demonstrate that that officer was violating clearly established law that a reasonable person would have known at the time of the violation. Um, In terms of where this comes from, uh, that particular uh, rule was announced in the early 1980s in a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald. Um, Before that, the court uh, in the 1970s wrestled with uh, a doctrine that uh, was rooted more in the good faith of the officer, so it was kind of a subjective standard. Um, that too um, bore little relationship with the common law, although it bore more relationship with the common law than the current doctrine. So um, Harlow versus Fitzgerald is on its face, um, very much is an attempt uh, to balance competing concerns. Uh, On the one hand, uh, it's important to ensure that we have a doctrine that deters unconstitutional conduct. Uh, But on the other hand, the court doesn't want to deter entirely lawful conduct um, that government officials may wish to or need to engage in. Um, And so this is uh, the court's attempt to strike a balance, right? And again, it uses the word balance in Harlow versus Fitzgerald. Um, so it's a policy-based rationale. So in a typical case, so someone files a Section 1983 case, can you kind of walk us through at what point qualified immunity arises and, and how the how the lawsuit proceeds? Sure. All right. So qualified immunity can emerge at a few moments in the life of a lawsuit. So one of the first places that it could be raised is at the motion to dismiss stage. Right? So it's uh, just on the face of the complaint, uh, taking everything that has been alleged in the complaint as true. Um, the argument goes in some cases um, that even if those are, even if all of the allegations are true, there's still not a violation of a clearly established right that a reasonable person would have known. Um, and what would then happen is briefing that would kind of look to the state of the law um, in that particular circuit uh, and in the United States Supreme Court. Um, the next place that it could emerge is at the summary judgment stage. Right? So um, after 
um, there has been discovery and uh, and perhaps even uh, competing narratives about what took place. Um, so, you know, viewing the facts and the light most favorable to the non-moving party to remind I mean, litigators think about this all the time, but for everyone else, <laughs> um, taking you back to your civ pro days. Um, so viewing the facts in the light most favorable to the non-moving party, the question becomes, is there a violation of a clearly established right that a reasonable person would have known at the time uh, of the violation? Um, and so at both of those moments, right, something can not even necessarily go to trial. Um, much less common, but technically still possible, um, is you know, uh, that someone could uh, you know, move based on the plaintiff's presentation of their case at trial and say that there hasn't been a violation of clearly established law. Um, but we see it much more frequently at the motion to dismiss stage um, and at the summary judgment stage. Procedurally, one thing I just wanted to note was that um, unlike in most circumstances, if a motion to dismiss in a normal civil case is denied or a motion for summary judgment is denied, um, the, the the defendant's motion is denied, usually you wouldn't get to appeal that until the whole case goes on. But in the qualified immunity context, there's this kind of special magical right to an immediate appeal for officers who are denied qualified immunity early on in litigation, which I think is something that sets this doctrine apart from really everything else. Sure, right? So the idea here is um, that you know, typically, um, as you note, there's a final judgment rule um, under 28. USC uh, 1291, you can only appeal um, when there is a final decision, uh, typically a final decision uh, on the merits, but something that has terminated um, all of the uh, litigation such that there's nothing left to review. However, um, under a handful of circumstances, the court has said, well, here the very reason for uh, having such a rule in the first place would be loss if there weren't an immediate appeal. So in this case, for example, with qualified immunity, the idea goes, the whole point is to keep government officials from having to uh, undergo uh, a trial because that in and of itself can be um, a deterrent to, to engaging in entirely lawful conduct. And so the idea goes, that interest is entirely lost if something goes to trial that should not have gone to trial. And so as a result, as you note, um, people can immediately appeal um, a denial of summary judgment at the motion to dismiss stage or at the summary judgment stage. Okay, so maybe let's pause for a second and just sort of summarize where we are. So you have this uh, big, important federal statute, Section 1983, right? This is a Reconstruction Era statute. As you said at the outset, the language of the statute is incredibly broad, right? Every person who acts under color of law deprives a person of the rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution or laws shall be liable, right? Like, it seems pretty categorical. Um, but as you said, in the 1980s, the Supreme Court basically, through this kind of common law process, created this incredibly powerful defense that can be raised by state officials. Um, and, and and as Jamie just pointed out, not only do you have access to this sort of atextual, very powerful defense, you also get to, you know, take a couple of bites at the apple, right? If you're unsuccessful in winning on a qualified immunity argument in the district court, you don't even have to wait for the litigation to run its course. You can, much of the time, right, immediately get uh, appellate review, which is quite unusual, right, in the federal system. Um, okay, so so that I think both doctrinally and procedurally is really helpful. So, so let's talk a little bit just to make it concrete about um, 
you know, the kinds of violations of rights that have been found uh, nevertheless to be shielded by qualified immunity. So there are a ton of cases out there, um, some of them with just wildly egregious facts. So I wonder if having, you know, briefed some of these cases and written about them, you might pick out a couple just to kind of talk our listeners through. A few examples. And there's a case called Mullenix from uh, 2015. Uh, and um, this was a case that involved a high-speed chase um, and uh, during the course of the chase, um, the uh, police department made a determination that the best thing to do would be to put spikes um, on the highway in order to stop uh, the vehicle. Um, one of the officers um, decided to, uh, that he wanted to, from a bridge, um, that when he saw the car coming, even before it hit the spikes, that he wanted to shoot into the vehicle. Um, his boss told him to stand down. Um, because they uh, had another mechanism to stop the vehicle that did not involve deadly force. Um, and he did it anyway, um, and then reportedly said, um, how about that for proactive, um, referring to a moment in which his boss had apparently told him to be more proactive. Um, and um, the Supreme Court uh, concluded in a summary reversal um, that the officer was entitled to qualified immunity, um, that this wasn't a violation of a clearly established right that a reasonable person would have known at the time of the violation. Um, they didn't answer the underlying constitutional question of whether or not it violated the Fourth Amendment, but they concluded that it wasn't a violation of clearly established law. There's also cases that I think a lot of people are familiar with, but we don't think about them as qualified immunity cases. Um, but uh, if you think about the case of uh, Safford versus United School District in 2009, this was the case um, where um, a middle school age uh, student, uh, a young girl, um, was strip searched. Uh, because she reportedly had ibuprofen on her at school. Um, we all remember, or many of us remember, that the Supreme Court said that that was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Many of us remember uh, Justice Ginsburg's moment in which uh, she called her colleagues to task for not taking seriously uh, the depth of this violation. What many of us perhaps don't remember uh, is that uh, that was not a violation of clearly established law that a reasonable person would have known at the time uh, of the violation. Um, Right now, the court uh, has a number of cases where it's uh, deciding whether or not uh, to grant and perhaps review um, this this uh, this doctrine of qualified immunity. Um, a case where a number of scholars, including myself, filed a brief was West versus Winfield, which is a case where uh, officers had consent to enter a home um, by one of the occupants. So the occupant actually gave an officer uh, the key, a key to the home. And the officers decided that instead what they wanted to do, um, concerned that perhaps the person inside had a BB gun, um, is that the best thing to do instead was to sh uh, put ho uh, shoot holes into the home and to place tear gas uh, to spread throughout the home. Um, it turned out that the person they were looking for wasn't even there. Um, and the, the plaintiff who lived there, um, she and her children couldn't live in the home for two months. Um, and uh, the Ninth Circuit actually said uh, qualified immunity. Um, and, you know, in that case, right, it's not a split second decision. Right? Wait, to pause for one sec. So the, the Ninth Circuit found that the officers in that case did still enjoy qualified immunity, that even That's that correct. conduct didn't violate clearly established law of which a reasonable officer would be aware just That's to drive that correct. home. Wow. That's correct. So they found or they noted that there were other cases in the Ninth Circuit um, where there was unnecessary damage in a home. Um, but they distinguished it uh, because some of, in some of those other cases, officers acknowledged that part of why they engaged in some of the damage was one, one word that's in the opinion is that one of the officers in one of the earlier cases said that they thought it was cool 
quote unquote. Um, and so they distinguished that case from this case because here the officers didn't say that they were doing it because it was cool, uh, but rather they were doing it because um, they were concerned that the man had a BB gun. Oh, my God. So that is just such a parody, but it but it illustrates right what just seems so farcical about a lot of the adjudication in this area, which is that it is often the case that if you are not able, right, as an injured party, if you're not able to point to another case that is functionally identical to your case, then a court is very likely to find that the, a reasonable officer would not have known that the conduct was unlawful. So it's like the fact that there was no utterance that matched the utterance in the earlier case just illustrates how insanely, um, just what a ridiculously high threshold plaintiffs bringing these cases need to clear, but also just the bizarre and backward-looking and also really judge-focused uh, nature of this area of law, right? If a specific judge, you know, in your jurisdiction has not found, you know, virtually identical conduct a violation of law, essentially anything goes. And there's just an infinite variety of misconduct, right, in which officers can engage. And so it's almost never the case you're going to find um, an identical set of facts, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting. There's there's a couple of strands in the doctrine. Um, some of the some of the case law does emphasize this kind of factual comparison of the sort that we see in West versus Winfield. Um, there is this other strand of uh, qualified immunity doctrine that um, I don't know if it's fallen out of favor, but we don't see it quite as much. But it, there's a case called Hope versus Peltzer from the early 2000s um, by Justice Stevens that said that there are some violations that should be obvious. That um, even if you can't point to a case with materially similar facts, um, that um, someone should be on notice just by virtue of the legal rule. Um, but it turns out that in Fourth Amendment cases in particular, um, where the mens rea is simply reasonableness, um, that the court, is, I think courts are concerned that, um, that they have to demand uh, some kind of similarity to earlier facts. Otherwise, um, you could say that every violation uh, shouldn't be subject to qualified immunity because by definition, it's unreasonable if it violated the Fourth Amendment. Right. And you're saying, so, so the distinction between hope, which is an Eighth Amendment case, right, um, and, and and hope has these incredibly egregious facts, right? Where basically a corrections officer is disciplining a prisoner by handcuffing him to a hitching post for seven hours, his hands above his shoulders, he's shirtless. It's the hot, hot, hot summer sun. At one point, a guard taunts him by giving a dog water within view of the prisoner. So, so this these facts are the kinds of facts that the Supreme Court, at least historically, has said do constitute a constitutional violation. And the court does say there's no, you know, no, we have not had this case before. And yet any officer should have known this is a violation. This is cruel and unusual punishment. Um, but so so that's interesting. So you're saying the Fourth Amendment, um, for whatever reason, the doctrine has been especially attuned to this kind of materially, you know, similar or even indistinguishable facts where maybe other bodies of law, uh, you know, understand that broad categories of conduct should be off limits. But the, the, pro the problem with hope the facts are so awful that I do feel like even in Eighth Amendment cases, lower courts are able to point to truly egregious conduct that falls short of that degree of egregiousness and and say, well, no, I mean, clearly that violates the Eighth Amendment, but but this is significantly, you know, less egregious than that. And therefore, you know, it follows that it doesn't. So um, like I feel like I've seen cases, Eighth Amendment type cases where prisoners are basically put you know, stripped, put into a cell by themselves for like 
two days um, and and they're sitting in their own feces and urine. And courts have said, I feel like there, there might have been a Fifth Circuit case recently where the court said something like, well, there are cases in which we said four days of this uh, is is unconstitutional, but this was only for one day or two days. And, you know, that's not clearly established. It's almost like it becomes a meme. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point that, right, even uh, even when you do have a high mens rea, there are ways that courts can distinguish if um, if you if the judge in question doesn't believe that something is uh, is obvious. Um, and that's the word in Hope versus Pelter, right? And so that different people are going to come to different conclusions about whether a violation is obvious. One other um, point that I think is is really interesting, there's a 2009 case, because uh, I would expect, you know, with all of these Section 1983 cases being filed in federal court, the scope of constitutional rights would be pretty clearly established by now. Um, but there's a, a 2009 Supreme Court case called per Pearson versus Callahan, which made that a lot more difficult. Um, can you explain what the case was and, and what impact it's had on uh, qualified immunity cases? Sure, absolutely. Right. So, um for a while, uh, for about a 10-year period or so, um, there was something that was known as the order of battle rule. And under this rule, um, federal judges were supposed to, when they were engaging in a qualified immunity analysis, they were supposed to ask two questions. The first question they were supposed to ask is, is this a violation, right? So um, at the motion to dismiss stage, taking the facts as true, um, has an, a violation, in fact, been uh, alleged at the summary judgment stage? Do the facts uh, are the facts sufficient to, to demonstrate a violation, or at least demonstrate there's a triable issue of fact with respect to a real violation? And then, and only then, um, were courts supposed to turn to a second question, um, which is, well, is the violation of a right that's clearly established or that was clearly established at the time of the violation? Um, Pearson versus Callahan, um, the court. Uh, got rid of the order of battle rule. So it said instead that courts don't have to answer whether or not there is a violation. They can skip ahead if they wish to the second question, um, whether or not this was a violation of clearly established law. So in the West versus Winfield case, for example, that was a case in which the Ninth Circuit, they didn't answer the question about whether or not this was uh, a violation. They skipped ahead to say that it wasn't a violation of clearly established law. And that's when, and kind of, again, immediately went to sort of comparing it to earlier cases. And to your point, right, um, this does mean that there's going to be fewer cases in which constitutional law is developed. I'll only caution, though, that um, the order of battle rule turned out to be pretty wildly unpopular among judges and justices, including some on the left and on the right, uh, because you would have these cases that would get to the Supreme Court where um, judges would find that things weren't violations at all. Uh, and there were folks like Justice Stevens um, who um, were writing uh, various opinions and concurrences saying, well, they didn't even have to reach that issue, <laughs> right? We should revisit this order of battle rule. Um, and uh, uh, in, in fact, I mean, I'm thinking in particular of an opinion um, that in a, in a high-speed case uh, scenario um, where um, you know, some of the liberal justices were like, wait, why did they even have to reach this issue? Um, and then on, on some of the other cases where uh, violations had been found, you had folks like Justice Scalia saying, wait, 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 they didn't have to reach that issue. Uh, and then you had very respected judges like Judge Pierre Laval, uh, who wrote an article about it called Dicta. Uh, about dicta, um, which uh, which proved to be quite persuasive, uh, about how you know being forced to engage in dicta this way, um, that the court should actually have more discretion. Um, 
And uh, and so and so Pierce, you know, so by the time you get to Pearson versus Callahan, uh, you know, on the Supreme Court at least, you have broad consensus across the board that it was time to abandon um, the order of battle rule. But it does mean that there are going to be fewer moments to develop constitutional law, uh, and that you can end up in this very circular space sometimes, where uh, if case after case they simply say not not established, still not established. Oh wow, huh? Not established yet. Um, like if that's what these cases say time and again, <laughs> and if that's all they say, um, then yeah, I mean, when are they going to get established? Especially in the excessive force context. I mean, there, there's some areas of law where it's going to get developed, right? There, including some areas of Fourth Amendment law um, that are going to get developed by virtue of um, the traditional uh, criminal justice process. Um, excessive force is not in that category, uh, and so you know for the most part, it gets decided here or it doesn't get decided at all. And so you can end up with a, a severely uh, stunted doctrine. And wait, will you say more about that? So so just in, you're saying in just kind of ordinary criminal litigation when there are like motions to suppress and things like exactly. that, sort of Fourth Amendment doctrine will develop separate and apart from these civil suits against police officers. Is that the idea? Exactly, right? So in, so in returning to West versus Winfield, for example, one of the questions was about the voluntariness of the consent. Right. Um, that's the kind of issue that tends to get worked out uh, in the criminal justice process by virtue of suppressing evidence, if evidence is found. Right. I mean, the irony, of course, is if nothing is found, then there is no criminal justice process. But um, but there are going to be some moments for questions like voluntariness to get worked out. Um, but on the question of excessive force, right, was this force reasonable? Um, there are going to be far fewer moments for that to get worked out because it's not going to tend to be related to a, a motion to suppress. Not typically. So, okay, so there's, there's, I feel like tons more nuance, but we want to get to some other things. So sort of summarize, so we have this, um, we have this doctrine in practice, it's really, really difficult to sue. You know, we're talking about police officers, as you said at the outset, this applies to government officials far beyond police officers, but that obviously is what we're most interested in today. And so you've alluded to this, there's the Ninth Circuit petition, and there are a number of other petitions um, uh, that raise these questions of whether the entire foundation of qualified immunity should be reconsidered. So do you want to talk through a little bit, um, uh, kind of where are the pushes to revisit qualified immunity? Not like to narrow it, but to really, I think, question whether it belongs in our body of law at all, where all that is coming from. Sure. Right. So, um, so I have a piece where I, I think a little bit about this, um, called, uh, formalism, Ferguson and the future of qualified immunity. Um, it's a short piece, a symposium piece, um, but uh, it really tries to get at precisely that question because you have these two um, competing uh, impulses um, that uh, or that, or that are creating a sort of interest convergence, right? So, um, you know, toward the beginning of this discussion, right, we talked about how this is a made-up doctrine, right? Uh, and, um, you know, perhaps saying that in 1982, Right, would not sound much like an indictment to say this was created through the common law <laughs> process. It's not in a statute. It could be like, okay, what's the big deal? Um, but it, but now, right, we have uh, decades uh, of uh, of presidents in many spaces, including in the in the field of federal jurisdiction, um, that are about text, um, and um, they there's not a lot of room for uh, a, for judges to kind of um, come up with their own uh, approach in a way that's kind of entirely disconnected, entirely untethered untethered from the text um, or even the history, frankly, um, of a provision. Um, and so uh, on that score, qualified immunity kind of stands out like a sore thumb. Then at the same time, and this is the Ferguson aspect of it, um, I, there's also, right, I mean, I don't need to 
kind of we all know the moment that we are in again, right? So the 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 word Ferguson now sounds quite dated, right? But the general idea we're all feeling it, we're all seeing it, right? We're in a moment again uh, in which people are demanding more accountability, uh, and uh, the idea that uh, that some people get to be less accountable than others um, is something that um, that causes a great deal of consternation and even pain for a lot of folks. And so you have these two things coming together. And so, um, you know, a lot of the briefing in these cases, they include people like uh, our organizations like the Cato uh, Institute. And, um, you know, one of the leading voices on the right here would be uh, Will Bode, uh, who wrote a piece in California Law Review. Um, and then um, you have uh, people like uh, Joanna Schwartz, who have very thoughtfully um, question some of the empirical bases for our qualified immunity as well. Uh, and uh, and you even have people like John Jeffries, um, who um, is a fairly conservative uh, law professor, um, who has said that at least in the context of excessive force, um, this doctrine has gone off the rails. One or more of the justices has also kind of tipped some interest in revisiting. Um, and, and I believe I, it was a couple of years ago in a Justice Thomas concurrence or dissent, I remember, uh, and and. I think when that came out, there was a whole bunch of like, wait, what? Really? Yeah. Okay. That's right. And Ziegler versus Abbasi. Um, That's right. The, the, he wrote a concurrence in which he cited to Will Bode's piece um, before actually it had been published. It was on SSRN at the time, uh, which is, I mean, it was, oh, wow. it was scheduled to be published, but, uh, but still, uh, I got a, a, that it was influential before it was even in print, uh, which is incredible. And I think it... I think it wasn't until we saw that concurrence that you started seeing a lot of qualified immunity petitions. So there have been a whole bunch of them filed over, you know, um, within the last couple of years. But what's interesting is there there have been a ton of opportunities for the court to actually revisit qualified immunity. Um, and there have been no bites yet, which makes me wonder either whether Justice Thomas isn't voting for certain those cases or whether maybe some of the other justices aren't so confident in his vote on the merits. Um, but I'm curious what what you two think about that. Yeah, um, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, we, I mean, we've... Uh, we filed briefs in a number of these, um, and we're, we're trying to be thoughtful about which ones. But, um, but yeah, no, it's it's not entirely clear uh, why there hasn't been a movement. Um, although, I mean, this time you have these nine qualified immunity cases that keep getting relisted, uh, so something is up. We don't know what yet. Perhaps it could just simply be um, a dissent from. Um, denial of cert, or, or or maybe something else. We just don't know yet. So we're going to probably drop, we'll, we'll drop this episode on Monday, and we may find out um, that day, right, whether the court is going to take up one or more. Uh, I didn't realize there were nine. A lot of them basically asking the court to take, you know, this kind of first principles look at whether the doctrine should be abandoned altogether, um, including, I think, one out of the Fifth Circuit uh, in which um, if I'm not mistaken, Judge Willette, right, who is, you know, a pretty prominent conservative uh, Trump appointee, was on the Texas state court and is now in the Fifth Circuit, um, sort of, you know, joins the chorus of skeptics about qualified immunity. And I think that sometimes, you know, a dissent from a panel opinion or from an on-bank opinion can sort of function as a little cert petition or, right, like give fodder to cert petitions or get the justices' attention. Not that, I mean, I think that they are probably interested, some of them. Um, so, uh, I think it seems to me that there's a very good chance that they take this issue up and and hear it next term and whether there's, you know, whether there's a huge shift in the law of qualified immunity, I don't know. I mean, I'm actually curious whether what is happening around us is going to influence their interest in announcing a grant uh, on Monday. You know, the justices are obviously, you know, they all live in and around D.C. They are well aware of the moment that this that we're in. And so I'm I'm curious if they'll sort of 
put it off for a few more weeks um, because they don't really like to be the center of a news cycle um, or whether this is going to you know, sort of actually further interest some of the justices who maybe hadn't been uh, sure about taking this issue up. So so we will see. But it seems to me at least possible that we will get grants in these cases the same day that this episode is released. There's been some discussion recently about um, legislation either ending qualified immunity or at least more closely tailoring it, like having some type of legislation that would get rid of qualified immunity, but put some limitations on it or allow it in certain circumstances. I know, I think Justin Osh said that he was going to propose legislation. I'm not sure if that'll go anywhere, but um, it is the kind of thing that Congress may become more and more interested in, especially as people um, are calling calling their uh, senators and representatives. Sure, right. And, I, you know, and I, I'd say um, that's a very welcome and wonderful development. I um, would only caution that, you know, simply just kind of getting rid of it and, and leaving nothing in its stead um, is not, in my view, necessarily the way to go. Um, you know, the one example I give is what if the day after Obergefell was decided, a bunch of county clerks were individually liable for the times that they denied marriage licenses. Like, I mean, suppose they were gay themselves or like members of PFLAG, um, which is, you know, parents and uh, friends of uh, lesbians and gays. Like, like really? Like, I mean, so, so the, I mean, I think it does make sense to have um, some limitations. It's just that this doctrine has gone completely off the rails uh, in terms of how it's being applied. Um, and so um, I think there needs to be thoughtfulness about this. I also want this to be an opportunity, not just to think about qualified immunity, but to think about some of the other made-up immunities too while we're at it, right? So, um, you know, so prosecutorial immunity, for example, um, which is much harsher than qualified immunity. It's absolute. Uh, so, you know, you can't sue a prosecutor for a Brady violation. You can't, you can't sue a prosecutor for training people literally to lie on the stand, right? And there are cases where, that have facts like this um, where you don't even get to the, is this clearly established? Because absolute immunity. Um, and so um, I think it's it's an opportunity for a broader conversation. And maybe that's asking a lot because the fact that the general public is talking about qualified immunity, right, That that's remarkable in and of itself. Uh, so maybe, maybe being like, <laughs> what about this? What about abstention? No. Um, like I, I, um, abstention might be bridged too far, but, but, yeah. but prosecutorial you know, absolute prosecutorial immunity seems like something that could be folded into a broader reform conversation. I mean, one thing I wanted to ask about before we left this topic also uh, was, so, okay, so hard to sue police officers. What about suing police departments and cities, right? This kind of question of the possibility of going over the heads of individual officers um, to hold entities accountable for the behavior uh, and practices of their employees. Yeah, so it turns out that's difficult too. Um, and uh, also for reasons that are not very clearly rooted in the language of Section 1983, it turns out. Uh, so uh, the Supreme Court has said that cities are persons within the meaning of Section 1983, but so they may be sued. But the Supreme Court has also said that you can't sue uh, a government for simply for the acts of its employees. Um, or even you can't even sue um, a, uh, a city because of the negligent acts of a higher up. Um, either. Um, you either need to have an unconstitutional policy, right? So you, like a law or regulation that is itself unconstitutional, um, or you need uh, deliberate indifference um, to known or very highly probable violations. Um, or, you know, you could also have a, someone who's very high, a final policymaker who, who is telling people to violate the law. That would also do So it. like like the attorney general saying, go ahead and clear out, hypothetically, Lafayette Square. 
Yes, right. So if that were if that happened at the state level, then yes, absolutely, right. Or if that happened at the local level, rather, yes. And there and there are cases like that where um, where there's a case I'm thinking about called Pimbar from the 1980s, where the county attorney, the equivalent of the DA um, in I believe it was in Cincinnati, said, "Go in and get them," right. And then they were they were like, "We don't have a warrant." He was like, "Go in and get them," um, and that uh, was it turned out sufficient. Um, but, it seems yeah. like those those types of cases are even more difficult because of the pleading standards that govern 1983 suits, which is, you know, it seems pretty obvious in some situations that there is either a culture or a, an underlying policy that um, creates so many widespread constitutional violations that you know it has to be coming from the top. But if you can't actually plead it, you won't even get discovery on it. Uh, and then there's no way you'll be able to prove it. And so a lot of these cases are... Um, the cases against municipalities are kicked at the pleading stage. And so we don't get to see a lot of what's actually happening within these um, departments. That's right. The most recent case um, that really kind of, I think, had a chilling effect on these sorts of suits was Connick versus Thompson, um, which I believe was in 2010, perhaps 2009. Um, and this was a case in which a man was on death row um, as a result, in part, um, as a result of a Brady violation. Um, that um, would have exonerated him. I mean, the facts are a little messier than that, but those are the basics. Um, and when the Brady violation came to light, um, his conviction was overturned, but he had spent 14 years on death row. Um, and the, it was, the conviction was reversed. It was weeks before he was scheduled to be executed. Um, and uh, he sued, and he was able to point to four other, at least, Brady violations um, that should have put the district attorney on notice about um, that this was a big problem in the office. And he won, actually. He won at the trial court level. Um, the Fifth Circuit, um, he ended up winning there, too, um, en banc. And the United States Supreme Court, uh, in uh, an opinion by Justice Thomas, reversed five to four uh, and said that these prior violations uh, were not enough to put um, the DA on notice because they were. Um, there's a difference between um, the exonerating evidence in those cases. So he looked at the facts of those cases and said, there's a difference between blood evidence, for example, um, and other types of evidence. Um, and so this shouldn't have necessarily put the DA on notice that he needed to train his officers about, or train his prosecutors about Brady. And then uh, Justice Thomas also said, um, also, by the way, students learn about Brady when they're in law school. And they learn it about it again when they're studying for the bar. And they learn it about it again during continuing legal education classes. And so that's another reason why uh, the district attorney wasn't necessarily on notice that he needed to train um, the prosecutors about uh, Brady. And so uh, as a result, um, they reversed and they said, you know, it's important for this standard not to collapse into mere negligence. It needs to be a very high standard in order uh, to protect, uh, he uh, invokes the word federalism. Um, so it's, you know, and so that's in some ways you might say it's the most egregious case, but it's also the most recent. And, uh, and what then happened is a, a slew of Brady cases uh, in the Fifth Circuit were then dismissed at the motion to dismiss stage. Um, part of me does wonder in some respects what's worse. Uh, so, you know, earlier we were talking about um, being able to appeal immediately versus not. And... Part, so much of my instinct, I want things to go to trial and I want people to have their day in court. I want them to have their moment. But I think about, when I think about John Thompson and I think about him having his moment and I think about him having a jury uh, find in his favor and give him an award of, one, of $14 million, $1 million for every year that he was on death row. 
and even win at the Court of Appeals level and then have his United States Supreme Court with the words equal justice under law inscribed on the building be the one to say, no, not so fast, federalism. Um, I don't know, you know, uh, I struggle with that um, in terms of when these cases should be decided. Yeah, having take, having it taken away at such a late stage, uh, somehow it feels more painful than losing early on. I mean, obviously, ideal that it doesn't go down that way at all. <laughs> but it's a great point about some of the cost of, you know, delaying the pain if it's going to be, you know, meted out at some point while the doctrine stands as it does. Shop the Sherwin-Williams four-day super sale and get 40% off paints and stains from June 7th through the 10th. With prices starting at $29.39, it's the perfect time to transform your space with color. Whether you're looking to revamp your bedroom, living room, or home office, we have you covered with bold hues, soothing neutrals, and everything in between. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Um, so we've obviously been talking about law quite a bit, and I think that we should probably pause to say that when it comes to police abuse and misconduct, uh, law alone cannot be the solution, right? That is really clear. Um, but reform of legal doctrine seems, if not sufficient, I think probably necessary to the kind of path forward. So, so I don't want our conversation to be mistaken as, you know, reflecting a belief that law will solve everything or even most things. But I do think that it is an important part of the picture. And so um, so I'm glad we spent some time breaking down one really important dimension um, of the law that surrounds, you know, police, policing and, you know, democracy. Thank you so much, Fred, for being here. For our listeners, make sure to check out Fred's work on qualified immunity. I think we can probably link to it in the show notes or we will uh, tweet it out on the Twitter sphere. Um, other p- great people that you've already mentioned in this episode to check out uh, include Joanna Schwartz at UCLA, who has done really great work on qualified immunity, and our co-host Leah Lippman, who has a 2018 article on qualified immunity and the constellation of doctrines that are related to it. 
let's just maybe call out a handful of other law professors who are writing really important work about criminal justice, policing, race, democracy. Uh, and the list is long, so we're just going to call it a subset. But uh, James Foreman, Monica Bell, Isa Kohler-Hausman, Elizabeth Hinton, who are all at Yale, Kate Levine and Alex Reinert, who are colleagues of mine at Cardozo, Paul Butler and Allegra McLeod at Georgetown, Amna Akbar at Ohio State, John Rappaport at Chicago, um, Everybody working on kind of different dimensions of these questions, but all really important work. Um, and I'm sure that we have missed others. So we're going to keep updating this list because we're going to keep revisiting this and related topics. And before we leave the topic, um, we, we kind of just wanted to pause for yet another minute uh, and to call out a list of organizations that you might consider donating to. Those include 8 Can't Wait. Uh, the URL there is lit- the number 8, 8cantwait.org, um, which is a project of Campaign Zero. They have put together these eight data-driven uh policies that can reduce police violence by more than 70 percent if all implemented. Uh, Cities like New York have already implemented some, but not all of them. Um, So that, I think, is a good place to direct your donations. Any community bail fund, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, the Detroit Justice Center, the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Um, We also got some recommendations from listeners. Um, There's the Black Women's Blueprint, which was recommended by Tazira Abe, um, the organization Asada's Daughters, the Black Visions Collective, and, and there are more. But that is a good start um, to organizations working on related issues that you might consider donating to if you can. So, Fred, thank you again so much um, for joining us. And we'd love to have you back sometime on the show. Sure. Anytime. This is a pleasure. Great. All right. Take care. So the next uh, the next items we want to talk about involve things coming out of the court recently. So last week, the court rejected a challenge to California's lockdown order as applicable to places of worship. And it was a 5-4 decision. Um, the case involved the South Bay United Pentecostal Church's attempt to enjoin uh, California Governor Newsom's stay-at-home order as applied to its church services. So the order uh, limited attendance at places of worship to 25% of building capacity or a maximum of 100 attendees. And there was no opinion for the court. There was just a denial. But the chief justice wrote a concurrence explaining the the denial. And it was interesting that it wasn't joined by any of the other justices who who, um, voted for uh, denying the the request, but the other and, and it, the other thing that's interesting is you have these two opinions. So one by the chief, one by Justice Kavanaugh, for the three other conservative justices, and those two opinions seem to be based on two totally different set, sets of facts. It kind of reminded me of the Wisconsin voting case. So the chief's opinion acknowledged what I think all of us thought was missing from the Wisconsin voting per curiam decision. It uh, acknowledged at length that COVID-19 has created an extraordinary public health emergency. It talked about how COVID has killed thousands of people. It has no known cure, no effective treatment, and asymptomatic transmission is a huge problem. And so in light of this context, the, the chief said that the restrictions appear to be constitutional because the stay order limited the size of similar non-religious gatherings, things like plays, concerts, and sporting events where people stay in close proximity together for long periods of time. And he said that while there were other uh, businesses that were treated differently, those businesses didn't involve the types of activities that create a more significant COVID risk. So he said grocery stores and banks, for example, don't usually involve people coming closely together um, to to stay together for long periods of time. And so he said that the Constitution has delegated the line drawing on these matters to politicians and courts should not second guess them. By contrast, as you said, the Kavanaugh dissent seemed to be operating in an entirely different factual universe. Um, basically, Justice Kavanaugh says the safety guidelines discriminate against places of worship in favor of 
comparable secular businesses. And then, as you said, you know, the, the, the comparable or the supposedly comparable businesses he points to are supermarkets, offices, restaurants, um, you know, many of which are su- subject to all kinds of limitations under California law anyway. So it's just factually wrong um, that they're, that all of those operations that he listed are, were, were, were able to proceed business as usual, where churches and churches alone uh, were not. Um, and he didn't, you know, engage at all with the chief justice's efforts to demonstrate, which I think even could have gone further, that there are significant material differences between churches and other businesses that were allowed to be open. Um, as you said, people pack tightly together in closed spaces, but I think the chief justice doesn't mention, and others have pointed out, um, there is a lot of talking. There is often singing, right? And, and and we actually know, as far as we understand anything about this virus, that it seems likely that that some of these very high transmission events um, have happened where people are talking or singing in close quarters, right, in closed spaces, um, and that the possibility of, like, particular individuals functioning as super spreaders, right, some people just may be really, really contagious, even if they're asymptomatic, uh, can be really exacerbated, right, by this kind of close quarters, indoor environment uh, like churches, which, again, you know, as you said at the outset, are not at all being told they cannot proceed in their operations, simply that they need to proceed at significantly reduced uh, capacity. So so I would say that the fact that there were four justices who seemed willing to enjoin this order, um, you know, a public health and safety order issued by a governor of a state, actually, I found pretty gobsmacking. You know, like I, a couple weeks earlier, there had been a petition out of Pennsylvania that had been rejected by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Now, that was brought by a group of businesses challenging the Pennsylvania stay-home order. And the court denied that request, no noted dissent. So I actually had sort of taken the message from that to be, there's not a lot of appetite on the Supreme Court to second guess the public health decisions of state and local officials right now. Like we are in the midst of a pandemic and the court is modest enough to know that it should not be second-guessing judgments like that. And just a couple of weeks later, we find out that at least when we're talking about asserted, you know, violations of the First Amendment and free exercise uh, uh, claims in particular, there are four of them who are willing to undo the work of public health officials. And I just found that pretty shocking. The chief justice didn't seem to be writing an equivocal concurrence, right? That concurrence was a very strong concurrence. So, So I didn't uh, I, I, one big takeaway there, I think, is that they're not going to get a fifth vote to, you know, enjoin any of these orders, at least while the conditions remain roughly similar to those described in the chief justice's opinion. I think as this pandemic proceeds and if if rates continue as they are in most places to really decline, you know, then these orders stay in effect, then you could see things coming down differently. But of course, state and local officials are 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 lifting their orders as this pandemic recedes, and so um, so I I'm, I'm not sure we're likely to see any more action at the Supreme Court unless we have like a big resurgence in the fall and sort of the reinstitution of various orders, in which case I think we very well could. Um, Okay, so let's move briefly on to opinions. So last Monday, the court issued five opinions in a single day, uh, and that's a lot, right? So so we found out just as the court took the bench the, you know, virtual bench at 10, um, that there would be five opinions. And uh, I think we were all sort of going, wow, that's a lot. But I had a sense that they were likely to be doing some kind of deck clearing, right? Because there is a lot that is big that they still have to decide. Uh, And I think I was basically right that they wanted to get some of the less 
divisive and controversial and lower profile cases out so they could focus on the big ones. And that's mostly what they did. Yeah, there's not a lot left, I'll say, on the non-controversial front looking at the opinions we're still waiting for. It's pretty much all... There's like 19 or 20 left, and there probably are, you know, I would say maybe a quarter of those or so are um, not the big ones, but they're, but, but the rest are pretty big. Um, so of the five, we're just going to quickly talk about a subset of them. Um, uh, the first is what uh, we co- we've been calling on the um, podcast the PROMESA case, um, and that's the case involving the Financial Oversight and Management Board of Puerto Rico. So we've previewed this case on a couple of different episodes. The basic backstory is that in 2016, Congress passed the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, or PROMESA, and part of that law created an independent entity to file for federal bankruptcy protections in Puerto Rico, um, uh, restructure debt, sort of do things like that. The, the, what precipitated this was this mass, massive financial crisis in Puerto Rico. Um, it was already bad. It was worsened by Hurricane Maria. Um, so that's what led to the passage of this law. Um, and the board, this financial oversight and management board that the law created, um, was to consist of seven members, one chosen by the president alone, the others chosen by the president from a list of six supplied by congressional leaders. And the constitutionality of that mechanism for appointing members of the board was the key question uh, in the case. So some creditors who were unhappy with board decisions filed a lawsuit arguing that these board members were officers of the United States and needed to be appointed pursuant to the Constitution's Appointments Clause. So what is the Appointments Clause? Part of Article 2 that says, as relevant here, that officers of the United States are nominated by the president, appointed by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. uh, And that's understood to mean Senate confirmation. And these folks definitely didn't get that. So if this is how the argument ran, if they were officers of the United States and their appointments were unconstitutional, uh, and so maybe it was everything that they had done, although that ended up being irrelevant. Okay, so why was that irrelevant? Because another constitutional provision, which is part of Article 4, empowers Congress to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory belonging to the United States. Uh, And so the court, in an opinion by Justice Breyer, uh, held that the Appointments Clause does apply to Puerto Rico and other territories, but that doesn't mean that these board members are subject to it. So under Article 4, Congress can create positions inside the territories, like Puerto Rico, that are not subject to the Appointments Clause, right? The Appointments Clause applies to federal officials. Congress, through its Article 4 powers, can create local Uh, offices and positions. Uh, And if it does that, it doesn't need to follow the Article 2 Appointments Clause procedures. And a few things were really interesting to me about this opinion. Um, One is that the kind of explanation that the court gave turned largely not on the Supreme Court's own precedents, but on political branch practice, right? Basically said, here's what Congress has done with respect to the territories, actually stretching all the way back to Congress's treatment of the the first Congress's treatment of the Northwest Territories. Um, And what it has done is it has created offices with local duties and functions, and it has often done so without using the Appointments Clause. And so that is part of what the law is, right? Like, I always really appreciate it when the court acknowledges that law is made by entities that are not it, right? That the political branches get to make law too. Um, So there's all this history and... um, And so the court says, as to these officers, um, we basically need to look at whether they exercise primarily local powers and duties, uh, and if so, they can be appointed under whatever mechanism Congress wants to create pursuant to Article 4. Um, And here, a combination of the PROMESA statute itself and the particular responsibilities that Congress gave to these officials um, basically uh, means that, yes, they are local. And so the process that Congress created for their appointment uh, was perfectly constitutional. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the about the argument was that it seemed like both the parties really pretty much agreed on what the test was for the most part and that it was going to turn on whether 
the duties that were exercised were local or federal. And it's just they, they really disagreed on how to characterize those duties. And there didn't really seem to be any disagreement among the justices on that question. The one other thing to flag was the question of the insular cases, right? So some of the challengers to the board had basically, um, and in particular, uh, a group very ably represented by Jessica Mendez-Kolberg, um, had asked the court to take this opportunity to overrule the insular cases, a cluster of cases from the beginning of the 20th century, basically holding that constitutional rights provisions don't apply with full force in the territories. Some of those cases are about Puerto Rico specifically. Some use vile language and reasoning about alien races. Um, I think it's pretty clear they need to be consigned to the dustbin of history, but the court didn't see any occasion to revisit them uh, here. The only thing I'll say about the Sotomayor concurrence, which is pretty interesting, it's a concurrence that reads actually more like a dissent. Um, and I mean, she I think she's not totally sure that these officials are exempt from the appointments clause. Um, finds herself troubled by the fact that they end up in this kind of twilight zone of accountability. So they're neither selected by Puerto Rico nor subject to the appointments clause, right, which, you know, divides responsibility among the president and the Senate. Um, and so um, I, I think that she thinks a wholesale rethinking of Puerto Rico's status under the Constitution, particularly in light of Puerto Rico's most recent Constitution, is in order, but says that as those issues aren't really presented here, uh, she's going along with the majority. But it's one of those dissenty concurrences. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, she makes a very good point that it's it's quite counterintuitive to suggest these people are exercising purely local functions when the local folks have been completely excised from the process. Um, the governor, the it, nobody really had, no one local has any has much influence over what's happening. Um, it's really being imposed upon them. So, so that's that was I, I found the concurrence very interesting as well. I also wonder, you know, Kate, what do you think happened here? It took what eight months for this opinion, six months, seven months for this opinion to come out, for a unanimous opinion to come out. There had to be some rearranging the deck chairs. There's no way that it started out uh, unanimous and ended unanimous and just took that long to write the opinion. I mean, so do you, have, do you have a theory of what changed along the way? I mean, I agree it's odd, but I but at the Sotomayor dissent is long, so I'm sure it took her some time to prepare it. But yeah, it's a, it's a medium length, not particularly long, unanimous majority opinion. The Thomas concurrence is quite short. So I don't have a good theory. I kind of wonder whether she originally had, it originally was a dissent. She had a couple other people on board and then maybe Justice Breyer change some of the language in the majority to get some other folks on board and she kind of diluted hers a little bit but I I don't know it's very it's very interesting but I feel like something maybe in whatever 50 years I'm gonna go back and look at these notes and um, once they're released and, and find out what happened the the other thing to note about this is you know that was a an October case this means there are only two October cases left the two title seven cases um, and the, there are three justices who have not written an October opinion that's the Chief Justice Justice Ginsburg and Justice Kavanaugh though I suspect that Justice Kavanaugh probably was assigned um, Malvo, which then uh, ended up being dismissed. So um, that's just something to note. The other case we wanted to briefly highlight, the other opinion, is um, Thole versus U.S. Bank. Um, that case involves the intersection of ERISA, which is the statute that governs retirement plans, and constitutional standing, which is the principle that to sue someone in federal court, you have to be personally and concretely affected by their alleged misconduct. Um, we covered this case at the live show. Uh, it, basically, the plaintiffs in the case alleged that the fiduciaries of U.S. Bank's pension plan um, improperly invested the pension plan's assets, and then when the recession hit, lost hundreds of millions of dollars and became underfunded, which means it didn't have enough 
assets to pay all of the pension benefits that were promised. So the plaintiff sued, but then after they sued, the employer made contributions to the plan and brought it back to overfunded status. And that's something that's required under federal law when you have a pension plan and it's underfunded. The employer is basically on the hook to then add money to the pension plan to make sure that the employees can get the benefits they're promised. Um, so the, the this means that the beneficiaries were not at risk of actually not getting their pensions. And so the question was whether there is standing to sue pension plan uh, fiduciaries who allegedly violated their fiduciary duties under ERISA when there's no apparent risk of monetary injury. So whether the plaintiffs win or lose, they won't get a dollar more in pension benefits. Um, the And we talked in, in pretty great depth before about what everyone had argued that the, the basic gist the plaintiffs said um, at uh, at the common law of trust, which preceded ERISA, and ERISA was based on the common law of trust, beneficiaries can sue when there's improper management of a trust, um, whether or not they've been injured yet. I, I should say the defendants very um, hotly disputed this characterization of trust law, um, but they also argued a very practical point, which is when you have a pension plan, the only people you can expect to sue when fiduciaries are acting improperly is the plan beneficiaries. And so if they can't sue, no one's going to sue. And fiduciaries will just be able to ignore their statutory obligations without any recourse. Um, there were some potential compromise options available to the justices. Uh, and to be honest, I thought that's what would happen, that the, the court would say, if there are ongoing fiduciary breaches, you can sue for injunctive relief, but you can't sue for damages when there's no risk of loss. Um, but that's not what the court did. Instead, in an eight-page opinion authored by Justice Kavanaugh and joined by the um, four other conservative justices, the court held that participants in a defined benefit plan have no standing to challenge fiduciary misbehavior if the outcome of the lawsuit won't affect their future pension benefits. Um I will, I will say, Justice, uh, I think Leah said before that this was her Fed court's exam a couple years ago, um, and, and she has, has said that she would give Justice Kavanaugh, I think, either a B- minus or a B plus, um, because it was a very short opinion. Um, I will say this is an enormously complicated case. Um, standing doctrine is enormously complicated. ERISA is incredibly complicated. There's a lot of, you know, 18th century, 19th century English common law that was fleshed out in the briefs. Um, and he really didn't go to any of that. Um, and so he 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 just kind of rejected the idea based on kind of core principles of standing um, that someone can get into court if there's no risk of um, concrete risk of harm in the future, irrespective of the context. Um and he also said, you know, don't worry about uh, the fact that plan participants can't sue. First of all, that's not just saying no one will be able to sue isn't enough reason to find standing. And second of all, there's lots of other mechanisms, including the DOL, that can regulate fiduciary behavior. Um, Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissent that basically said this majority opinion is overly simplistic. Um, it doesn't analyze any of the issues the parties um, fleshed out, and it misapplies the, the court's ERISA jurisprudence. Um, and so, you know, I generally, I think I agree with the outcome of the majority of the opinion, and I know that Lee and I disagree on this. I think standing is a judicially created doctrine, but while it exists, um, I don't think it's inconsistent to say that people actually have to be harmed uh, concretely before you have to get into court. Um, at the same time, I, I think that Justice Kavanaugh's opinion seems like it's kind of a justice who has not really ever had to deal with ERISA, and so I think it is a bit over sim overly simplistic, and I have been on the losing end of um, Supreme Court opinions that don't really engage at all with the substance of the arguments. And it's enormously frustrating because you spend hundreds, if not thousands of hours, you know, 
looking at all of this case law and looking at all of these precedents and and trying to give the court every tool it needs to uh, address the arguments. And when you, when you get a really short opinion back that just ignores most of those arguments, it's very frustrating. Um, so I don't think this case will be super consequential because there aren't a lot of lawsuits like this. Um, but uh, but it's an opinion that is now on the books. I don't. I, I think that you know you and Leah and probably Leah's Fed court students know this case better than I do. So I I, I never really managed to avoid immersing myself in it. And I, I think I'm going to continue to do that. Um, but I will say that um, you know there are big important questions um, about how congressionally created rights of action intersect with Article Three standing. Right. It's definitely the case that Congress has power, some power to define injuries. And, you know, Kennedy has this language in his Lujan concurrence, which he says, Congress can define injuries, articulate chains of causation that give rise to a case or controversy where none existed before. That's like this, you know, big statement of support for Congress's power to create standing. Um, And I I think you could also take the position that Congress has no such power. And the court has basically um, been in this murky middle space, I think, for many, many uh, years. Um, And standing, you know, should mean that if someone's not harmed by the violation of a statute, then it's, you know, then there is no right to go to federal court and sue. But to me, like what the action is, what what is harm, right? What does harm mean? And this very narrow uh, conception of harm as like your bank account is smaller than it would have been in a way that you can sort of point to concretely uh, by virtue of this mismanagement. Now, maybe that's right in a case like this, but the kinds of harms that are less tangible than that, that Congress can provide a remedy for and give you the ability to go to federal court to, you know, to vindicate. Um, I just don't think this opinion does much to sort of further develop what the parameters of that are. Totally agree with you. And that's one thing that I find frustrating because you're right. So so the court has said Congress can't create standing. It can't create constitutional standing. The court has also said Congress can recognize intangible harms that can rise to a level uh, of harm that is a, a constitutionally cognizable injury. Those two things aren't like clearly in conflict, but they're certainly in tension. Um, and this opinion does nothing to really flesh that out. The other thing the court has said is that um, even if at common law you would have had standing, um, and that doesn't mean that you magically will under a statute, but the court has also said we're going to look at historical bases for when you could get into court, and that can inform our constitutional analysis. And I really don't understand how those two things can coexist. Um, and it can't so just be it can't just be common law. Like you know, the, what I always the statute that I always think about um, on this topic is the Freedom of Information Act, right? FOIA. So there's a federal statute that says you get a right to a document, and if you don't you know, the, the agency doesn't give you your document, you get to f- go to federal court and sue for it. Um, and there's just no common law analog. And maybe it is the case that a particularly, like a robust view of of sort of the, the or, or, or a very narrow view of Congress's power to um, create, identify harms and create a cause of action um, to address those harms would mean that the Freedom of Information Act and the federal right of action that it creates is unconstitutional. And that, to me, just can't be right. Um, But I do think there, but I'm not sure the court has ever decided a case that answers the question of why it is permissible for Congress to create that statutory right. Totally. And I do think that practical concerns might have um, heavily influenced the court's opinion here. In this situation, not only um, there there are a whole bunch of safeguards that protect uh, pension beneficiaries, including the fact that employers have to kick in money if the plan gets underfunded. There is a um, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is basically insurance for pension plan benefits. So there's all these things that really act to protect employees. And I, I suspect that that uh, influenced the analysis, um, even if it didn't 
you know, enter that much into the actual opinion itself. Um, we're just going to briefly mention the the lineups on the other three opinions that came out. Um, two of them had the exact same lineup. So um, Nasrallah versus Barr, which was about the reviewability of factual findings for uh, claims involving the con- Convention Against Torture. It's a immigration um, a s- statute um, or it's a form of immigration relief. Uh, that case was a Justice Kavanaugh decision joined by the chief, Justice Gorsuch, and the four more liberal justices, and Justice Alito and Justice Thomas dissented. And then Ban- Bannister versus Davis had the exact same lineup, but with Justice Kagan authoring the majority. Um, and again, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas dissenting. It was about um, Rule 59 emotions in the habeas context, um, and and the court held that they are not second and successive habeas petitions. Um, just I should note a shout out to my colleagues, including friend of the show, Andrew Kim, who worked on that case. Congratulations to them. Uh, the last case is the GE energy power conversion case, which was about international arbitration, uh, a unanimous uh, opinion by Justice Thomas. Um, okay, so that's all we have time for this week. It is going to be a big month for the Supreme Court. Lots of opinions, probably a couple of days a week, so we will have both our regularly scheduled content, uh, maybe some short day of recaps. I think we will also do more special content like we did in the first half of the show, so please keep refreshing your feed for that. Thank you again to our special guest, Fred Smith, who was just so great. To our producer, Melody Rowell, to Eddie Cooper for our music, to all of you for listening, for sending suggestions and encouragement our way. Uh, you can support us by m- buying merch at our website, which is strictscrutinypodcast.com. You can support our Glow campaign, which is glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next time. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not Shop the Sherwin-Williams 4-Day Super Sale and get 40% off paints and stains from June 7th through the 10th. With prices starting at $29.39, it's the perfect time to transform your space with color. Whether you're looking to revamp your bedroom, living room, or home office, we have you covered with bold hues, soothing neutrals, and everything in between. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.